0: The third reason uh, that went unspoken, but I think is absolutely undeniable, is that acknowledging natural immunity would lead to the next uh, very basic question, how many people have it? And the fact that two years into the pandemic, we still do not know exactly how many Americans have had COVID, is aston- it's an astonishing failure of public health to do basic epidemiological research. The two most basic facts that every medical student learns first about every new illness that they learn about are incidence and prevalence. How many new cases and how many total cases over a given period of time, right? So let's run population-based, randomly sampled uh, T-cell testing or ongoing antibody testing to find out each month how many Americans and in what regions have already had COVID. Seems rather obvious. Well, if we do that, we're gonna find that you know, prior to Omicron, it was probably over 50% by most estimates. After Om- Omicron, uh, many people are estimating 70% or more have had COVID. The public health establishment was afraid of those numbers because they would see it, rightly or wrongly, as an admission of policy failure. Why is that? Well, the lockdowns, the masks, the mass vaccination campaign, all of this was supposed to stop the spread of this virus. And yet, 70 plus percent of Americans got coronavirus anyways.
1: Not not a smashing success.
0: Exactly, exactly. Uh, As part of uh, my ancillary efforts surrounding my lawsuit, we also filed a uh, a FOIA request to the CDC saying, please show us one case of someone getting reinfected. And, you know, we can debate about how common reinfections are with natural immunity. My own view is that they're, they're quite rare, maybe a little more common now with Omicron, but always milder than the first case. Um, almost no cases of hospitalizations and, and, and deaths. So one very important fact about natural immunity is that there has not been a single reported case of someone getting reinfected and subsequently transmitting the virus. To others, which we know is not the case for vaccines. Vaccines don't offer, against COVID, that kind of sterilizing immunity. So we foiled the CDC and said, please show us any evidence of someone with natural immunity getting reinfected and transmitting the virus to others. They couldn't come up with any data. We actually put that in our lawsuit. The university's experts could not come up with a single counterexample. It's a very dangerous thing to say, right? Because almost nothing in medicine and science is 100%. You can always find outliers. Um, but natural immunity—people with natural immunity are the safest people to be around. You're not going to get COVID from somebody who's already had COVID.
1: Okay. So, I mean, there's so many questions that pop in my head just as people are talking here, and we've already got uh, four uh, name tags turned upside down. I got to quick ask this one though, um, and again, I'm not a medical researcher, but as I was reading about this, it seems like prior to co- the coronavirus, there were already about three coronaviruses that would infect humans and cause a cold, right? Otherwise, it's rhinoviruses. Is, is Omicron, is that just like one of those cold viruses now? Ryan, go ahead. Dr. Um, Cole,
2: Cole hit it. Yeah.
1: You can put it down right
3: away. I, I was hoping that someone else would take that hot potato. Yeah. Um, oh, is that
4: a hot uh, potato? Robert,
5: I, Robert, <laughs> right. Robert no, I, I can take that oh, hot okay, potato. Okay,
4: that's like, it, th- This is an excellent question. We have a new virus right now, Omicron. It has nothing. If you look at your family tree and you see the funny uncle that really doesn't look like the family and maybe the milkman came along somewhere, that's what Omicron is. Okay, he's not on the family tree. He probably actually snuck into the family somewhere. So it doesn't branch off of the other variants. Omicron has enough mutations. The backbone of it actually looks more like a pre-Wuhan virus from a genetic point of view. It is behaving like a common cold to the point of what Dr. Urso said earlier. It doesn't bind in the lungs like the previous variants did. It doesn't cause the degree of clotting that the scary earlier variants did, we have been blessed with almost a natural vaccine. It is essentially, now if you had COVID and your COVID recovered, um, you tend to get less disease with Omicron symptomologically. However, we are finding that those who have gotten the shots are getting Omicron, the vaccines are negatively effective, meaning you're actually getting Omicron at an enhanced higher rate. Now there's a reason for this, and this is basic immunology. If you get a shot in your arm, you don't have a tendency to you, everybody hears about antibodies, but there's a special kind in your tears, your nose, your mouth called secretory IgA. It's little mops in your tears. If you've had a natural infection, you have high levels of secretory IgA, these little mops in your mucosal membranes, and that mops up virus quickly. The virus from or, I'm, I'm sorry, the the response from the vaccine. You don't get this physiologically. So we are seeing actually the vaccinated carry a high volume of virus because they don't have this secretory IgA. So this false construct from our federal agencies that this is a pandemic and the unvaccinated are spreading is a pathophysiological lie. The vaccinated are carrying high volumes in their nose, their tears, their mouth of virus because the vaccine does not neutralize in that location of the body where the virus comes in. So this is very important. This is why mandates are absolutely now moot, irrelevant, and out the window, and need to go away worldwide like most of the world has done already. This is the funny uncle. This is not SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. This is COVID-22, meh.
1: You know I mean, so, so it, it may not even be a variant of the coronavirus it, 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 this might be a naturally occurring may not even be a variant
4: of the coronavirus it, it, it's a coronavirus no doubt but but, but not of v- the coronavirus no, it, 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 it's essentially know. it's it's going to be a more of a common cold like the other ones you just correctly mentioned that have circulated for decades and years that we've known in the human body that's part of the reason why many of us didn't get very sick because we've had those common colds and that good T-cell innate immunity, the ability to say, "Yeah, I've had a lot of corona common colds, my body can fight this off. You're likely asymptomatic because as you travel the world, you probably had some of those. So yeah, again, this is that funny uncle that doesn't belong. This is a blessing to humanity. The frail, the fragile, the comorbid, die of common colds every uh, every year no matter what common cold it may be so we still need to be cognizant of those things do some of the early treatments still work against this and make your symptoms less absolutely is your risk of death from this one far less absolutely is your risk from hospitalization far less absolutely is South Africa open back up I've talked to my colleagues there they're like absolutely it's common cold what a blessing we're done we need to do the same
1: uh, Dr. Parks. Uh,
3: Dr. Mullen, oh. I want to talk, I, I, I
1: want, I, that was my first question, okay.
3: Yeah, I, I didn't want, I didn't want to get the way it was worded is this, um, a, a separate it uh, retro- beta coronavirus. Against the what new- I wish new- to say, I've just come from Europe, from uh, the opportunity to spend time, work with, and learn with Dr. Gert Vandenbosche, who has been the leading proponent worldwide of the position which I gently suggest the senator and his colleagues really uh, it merits paying attention to. One of the things about Omicron that's rather odd is that the data are showing that the vaccinated seem to be more prone to becoming infected by Omicron, and there may, or there's some indications in the data. This is, I'm gonna voice this as my opinion based on the data that I've looked at, primary data from a number of countries. Uh, So it's my opinion. There's evidence that Omicron is associated with a higher risk of infection in the vaccinated population, and that that increased risk is a function of the number of vaccine doses that one has received. Omicron, we are are truly blessed, as I said back before Christmas, that Omicron has such low risk for severe disease and death. However, it's got a warning sign and it's what GERT has been warning about and what the FDA has acknowledged in the original documents allowing the emergency use authorization, in which they told the pharmaceutical industry that they desired that the pharmaceutical industry would investigate the risks of antibody dependent enhancement or vaccine enhanced disease. What GERT has been warning us about, quite stridently, is if we continue to implement this universal vaccination policy, rather than the position of the Great Barrington Declaration, which I've supported in multiple op-eds in the Washington Times, among others. If we continue to pursue this universal vaccination strategy in the face of the pandemic, particularly with Omicron now, a much more highly infectious, highly replication-competent virus, what we risk is the dri- driving the virus through basic evolution to a state where it may be more pathogenic and more able to elude immune response. So in sum, I don't wish to scare, we've had enough fear porn, but if we continue to pursue universal vaccination, the high probability is that what we will continue to see is the evolution of additional mutants that are increasingly infectious and may well become more pathogenic. This policy of of forced universal vaccination is absolutely contrary to all of our understanding about basic viral evolution. We are clearly seeing the development of escape mutants that are resistant to the vaccine. Omicron is not only resistant to the vaccine, but its infectivity seems to be facilitated by the vaccine. in my opinion, this must stop for the sake of the world. Over.
1: Again, Dr. Doctor Gert van, van den Bosch, right, he's South African, he wrote a letter to the World Health Organization well before these vaccines were approved, warning about you know, vac- you know, mass vaccination into the midst of a pandemic. And, and, those warnings went unheeded. I've, yeah. I've always said too, and there's so much we don't know.
3: Minor modification. It, it, it would
1: indicate to you some caution.
3: He's, he's Belgian, um, but, oh, I'm but sorry. it's a small nuance. He's actually corresponded also with some, some of the, what I believe to be the world's leading vaccinologist. And he asked me to not disclose the name, um, but a gentleman who has headed um, major vaccine companies, highly respected, innovative individual, who completely concurs that this is what we're doing?
1: Okay, Dr. Parks. And again, we're veering in vaccines, which I know we'll get to. And by the way, we have all kinds of questions online, which shows the interest. Five hours won't be enough time, but let's let's try, and, to, let's try and stick to the you know kind of the
6: right. The, the I topic. want to go back to your original Thank question. You. So it's possible that you had a, 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 po- a false positive PCR test, and I just want to address the PR c- PCR test because many people don't really understand what it is. A PCR test amplifies a signal, and the PCR threshold, the number of cycles, each cycle amplifies the signal once. So we go from 2 to 4 to 8 to 16 to 32, and you get to the point where you have a lot of amplified virus. So you need to have that cycle set low enough that you're only getting virus. Because if you have it set really high, if there's no virus there, it's going to amplify something, and you're just going to amplify garbage. And so your false positive may have just amplified garbage when you have 40 cycles of PCR. And so that's something um, that is really of concern because we're having our athletes tested where, you know, we have all this high, high mortality in our young people. And we're kicking them out of sports because of false PCR tests, or possibly they had some fragment of the virus, again, parts of the virus. The virus has been destroyed by their innate strong immunity, right? Our young people have very strong immunity. They blow that virus apart. They still have parts, but they're not infective. They get that positive PCR test, now they can't play sports, now everyone has to be quarantined, blah, 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 blah. So this issue of the false PCR test really does need to be addressed. Okay.
1: Thank you. Uh, Dr. Wiseman, quick. Again, I, I, I want to just try and
7: keep this thing moving. There's, there's so much ground to cover. Um, yeah, I just want to briefly uh, pick up um, natural immunity. Uh, and I want to point out two very important studies uh, that show either 88 percent or 77 percent Protection from natural immunity, and the studies were performed by Pfizer and Merck. Now,
1: when you say natural immunity after a COVID infection, by the way, I did have antibodies. So,
7: so, so, so in um, so in in Pfizer the the Pfizer study for um, for um, oh blocking the Pfizer study for the vaccine, excuse me, and the um, and the and the and the Merck study for the molnupiravir. They looked at people who were already seroprevalent at the time of, of, of the study, and when you compare those people uh, in the placebo groups that were either you know, yes, seropositive, or no, or seronegative, there was a, there was an 88 or 77% um, protection against COVID from from Pfizer's own study and from Merck's own study. So so thank you Pfizer and thank you Merck, 77, 88%. That's that's very important. And Second again, thing think Dr.
1: Alexander talked about hundred and forty different studies that showed
7: Yeah, well you know, I think these are very important. I mean, yeah, very hundred and forty, but I I'd like to quote Pfizer and Merck. Thank you. Okay. Um well, that's that's
1: what information they do make available. Doctor Merrick? Uh, yeah, so just to
3: carry
8: on with your question and Like. Uh, yeah, To follow up on your question and what Dr. Uso and McCulloch have said, the most important factor in determining progression of disease is symptoms is viral load. The viral load in your nosopharynx is really important. So that's where the ACE2 receptors are. That's where the virus replicates. Many many factors affect the viral load, as we heard, secretory IgA. But it kind of makes sense if you know where the virus is. Kill it where it is. Kill it and we have oropharyngeal and nasal sprays that will kill the virus within five seconds. Why aren't we doing that? I travel with my own little nasal spray, because I don't know when I'm gonna be infected, I squish it in my nose. It is a simple, cost-effective way to control the virus. Just squish this in your nose.
1: You realize I was ridiculed for about 72 hour time period for just mentioning Potentially gargling with some, you know, after these studies show this, so you're you're treading on dangerous ground here, Dr. (laughs) Merritt.
8: Yeah, I mean, goggling is good because it's good for your bad breath anyway. That's why
1: I said. That's why I said. What's the worst outcome? You have fresher breath. Yeah. I mean, by the way, that's the truth of all of these things you're talking about. All these cheap generic repurposed drugs. We know the safety profile. Why not give them a try? Uh, that, that is what has boggled my mind. Why, why have doctors been so reluctant to practice medicine? But Dr. Hart, Dr. Risch.
9: I just want to respond to something that Dr. Malone said about the L- little closer the, about the potential occurrence of a new and more pathogenic strain that Omicron has essentially pushed out all of Delta, according to the CDC surveys that we're now seeing maybe 1,000 cases of Delta a day compared to the million of of Omicron a day, and it's going away threefold per week. Omicron appears to convey immunity to previous strains, and so it's extremely unlikely that a new pathogenic variant would come out of any previous strain of, of COVID. If one were to come out of Omicron, it's unlikely to be more seriously pathogenic because of the 50 mutations that it already has, it would have to essentially reverse mutate back into a more pathogenic variant, which seems at least relatively unlikely. So I think we're probably in pretty good grounds for expecting not to face a more pathogenic variant, but to to just to face, uh, Omicron's already got dozens and dozens of its own variants now, and we're likely to see those circulating and maybe more so next fall but it's still very likely to remain a, a cold-like virus with all of its mutations. Just as I says, say,
3: from your Johnson. lips to God's ears, uh, the, what, essentially what Harvey is asserting is the thesis that many of us have hoped for, that Omicron would function akin to a live attenuated infectious vaccine. Yeah. And, and I share your hope.
4: And, and he's right. Real quick, as a science nerd, um, because of that furin cleavage site, which we see in the laboratory setting and in creating modifications of viruses for enhancement and function, that furin cleavage site isn't really being split and causing the S2 and the S1 to split off in Omicron. Again, it's more of a common cold. It's a blessing. That's why we're not seeing all the effects. And to Dr. Rich's point, to Dr. Malone's point, absolutely right. We're seeing the behavior giving back immunity, hallelujah. The mandates are now unnecessary because we have a new virus that really doesn't have the genetic potential to go bad.
1: So what you've witnessed is at least a slight disagreement between our experts here. And that's, you know again, I wish we had truth and certainty, but there isn't. And so the only way you're gonna find truth, the scientific method is to be skeptical, question each other and discuss it, which has not been allowed. Um, before we move off the uh, trying to stop the spread, and I do, not, I do not want to spend much time on this. I want one person to, you know, to take this one up. Uh, the efficacy of masks. Can, so, so, somebody, somebody wanted just to, I mean, who's? Paul?
0: Paul Alexander. Paul, okay.
6: While he's coming up, I'll just say, if if all those things fail, we have things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine that actually prevent the spread, right? So even if we have a more infectious clone, if we start using these medications, then we can stop the spread. I
1: I see Steve Kirsch has uh, stepped up the microphone too. He's he's got an example. I think of masks that might work, but uh, Um, but again, quickly, because I don't want to spend much time on this. There's more important
5: issues. Two things quickly, I'll touch a masks, and Steve will help me. To reiterate something that Dr. Malone said <clears throat> about Dr. good van den Bosch, I think the key point he was making is, had we been using a, a vaccine that could sterilize the virus, that could stop transmission, we would not be in this situation, whether or not the vaccine is needed. And the problem here is this vaccine does not stop infection, does not sterilize the virus so it does not stop the transmission you can never ever get to population herd immunity 100 with these vaccines impossible now <clears throat> and there's also dr malone mentioned the data we have some brand new data from the uk and scotland uh, this week the third week of reporting for 2022 which demonstrates conclusively that the vaccine is driving the second dose and third booster dose is driving massive infections in the vaccinated, and it is a big, big problem. In terms of masks, and I know Steve will speak eloquently too, we pulled together 150 studies published in the Bronx Stone, and we could say this, when we looked at all of the comparative studies, there are just two RCTs, which is one is a Danish mask study, and um, that had a problem to be published. That shows basically that masks are ineffective in terms of, There was one RCT, cluster randomized, out of Bangladesh. Uh, It went from zero effect to about a 13%, very modest reduction in risk. The body of evidence, and I speak as an evidence-based medicine specialist, the entire body of evidence tells us conclusively that the blue surgical masks that we've been using and the white masks, the man-made masks, are largely and highly ineffective they do not stop transmission, and every single place in America that we looked at, or the globe, where you impose a mass mandate, the actual infections increase. So, I'll, so, I'll, so this,
1: this was actually one instance where Dr. Fauci was right first, <coughs> before he before he decided to, before was so, so, you know, Mr. Kirsch, just real quickly, describe who you are, how you got involved in this, and what point you want to make.
10: Sure, my name is Steve Kirsch. Um, I used to be a high tech uh, executive. My company was shut down. I started the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund, was featured on 60 Minutes for discovery of, or for the funding of fluvoxamine, uh, which is proven to be reduced death by 12, a factor of 12. And still the NIH won't um, recommend it for some reason. Um, And I'm also the founder of the uh, Vaccine Safety Research Foundation.
1: Okay, you have a mask there you want to talk about. Yeah,
10: so, um, so there are only two randomized studies that have been done for masks and COVID. And they looked at cloth masks and surgical masks. And in both studies, there was zero effect. So the most recent one was the Bangladesh study. And what we did is we got a hold of the original data set that was used for the paper, and we did the graphs. There is no difference Mm -hmm. at all between wearing a cloth mask and not wearing a cloth mask. The curves were identical, and they misrepresented it in the study as showing that it works. If you actually look at the data, and you plot the data, and you can get the data because it's publicly available, you will find that the curves are identical. There is no difference between the the cloth mask and the surgical masks were in between the cloth masks. So if you had a, a red cloth mask, it worked. If you had a purple cloth mask, it didn't work at all, and the surgical masks were in between the two. In other words, it's all statistical noise. These masks do not work at all, and the N95 masks are maybe slightly better, but only for a very short amount of time. If you're in a room with someone, um, for any amount of time, even with an N95, it's not going to work. The only mask that is proven to work is the one that they don't tell people about and that nobody wears. (laughs) This is the only mask that works. So this is called a P100 mask. It is 150 times more effective than an N95 mask. This is the only mask that has a chance of working. It's never been tested for the coronavirus, but it should be 150 times better than almost zero. Um,
1: I'm, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little reluctant to even have you talk about it because I'm afraid the Biden administration just might allocate about $100, $100
10: billion to send those out to everybody. Yeah,
9: yeah.
10: But here, here's, here's what it's like. So you put this arm like this, and then you strap it, and then you talk to people just like this. And this will filter it out, but, but there's again, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm
1: afraid that I'm I'm afraid I'm
10: afraid they're going to require that for air fly, air travel. So, okay. but but no, one important thing is that this mask works only in one direction. It will work to protect you, but not some. But there's else. no filter on the outside, because if it was filtered on the outside, you wouldn't be able to breathe. Right. Okay. Right. So it it works but it only works one way and if they were really serious about protecting the american public they would require everyone to wear this in which case everyone would rebel and we would have no mask mandate and of course we and so, so one
1: other point on masks, and we don't have a, psych, a psychiatrist unless somebody wants to speak to this but i think it's obvious i don't think we really need to, the harm done to our children terms of development, speech. I mean, all these things have been written about widely. I mean, just even uh, their oxygen levels. Uh,
5: Uh, uh, Senator Johnson, there's one important study that actually ties everything up. It was the Swedish study by Ludvigsson, and he was canceled because of this study. He looked at the 1.95, I think you mentioned it. 1.8, I thought. 1.9 million sweet kids across the entire pandemic from zero to 16 years old all in primary school, secondary school. And what they found was that there were zero deaths in Sweden in children. And what was critical about that study was that there was no lockdowns, there were no school closures, and there were no masks. It was not even testing whether you had masks and it worked. There were no masks and there was zero deaths. And that, that was an actual seminal study. And thank you for mentioning it.
1: Well, again, we, we've talked about the stratification but, of severe illness with uh, COVID that's been ignored, but Dr. Urso.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to enter into the record, uh, clean this up a little bit. Mass have been looked at for three decades or so where there's been randomized controlled trials. So there's roughly, I don't know, 12 or so randomized controlled trials. There's zero randomized controlled trials that show mass stop the spread of respiratory disease. And that's including N95. And for everyone, N stands for non-oil resistant. 95 stands for 95% of airborne particles, of which all viruses fit through. So I usually tell people that you know wearing an N95 also has not been shown in randomized controlled trials to be effective. Um, but more importantly, the, the capsule on these viruses are an oil capsule, and I tell people it's like peeing in a pool; it goes right through. It doesn't stick to water water molecules, it's an oil capsule virus. At the end of the day, the data is what it is, there's zero, repeat, zero randomized control trials at all showing that mass stops better upper respiratory disease.
1: So let's move on to the second pillar, discuss early treatment a little bit more robustly, and I'm I'm actually going to reward one of the, uh, we're getting all kinds of questions from Rumble, and I wish we could answer them all, but I've got one here from uh, uh, Sand M, it says, uh, but my adult children, both fully vaccinated, got COVID, could not get treatment from doctors in Virginia, and they did not have mild cases. Uh, this person asked, What is the definition of mild? What, what I want to talk about is my first question. <clears throat> what, because I've heard this from so many constituents, so many people I've talked to that get that test, uh, start getting seriously ill, and they l- because NIH, because you know, I call them the COVID gods. Literally, have no recommendations. I mean, the, the only people you know—you've got the uh, uh, FLCC here, you've got uh, Dr. McCulloch's protocol. That's pretty much about it. Um, what are, what is a person supposed to do? When you know, they, they, it's very difficult to find doctors who will treat. If you have a doctor who will treat, it's very difficult to find a pharmacy that will fill some of these drugs some of them that haven't been uh, poisoned uh, you can get but you know, I mean the, the big ones the ivermectin hydroxychloroquine it's very so what are what is a person to do when their loved one gets covid
8: so can i just ask answer what the NIH's recommendation is and, and they've made sure. it public well
1: you
8: know, we we want to know what somebody's supposed to do like do <laughs> okay well well the NIH tells you go home, take fluids, take Tylenol, and you stay at home until you get blue and you can't breathe, and then you go to hospital, and then they isolate you like a prisoner, give you remdesivir and dexamethasone, and then you die. That's the NIH recommendation. No,
1: we'll, get, we'll get to that phase So later, obviously
8: what we're saying, and Dr. McCulloch has said this, and all we've said, this is a treatable disease. COVID-19 is a treatable disease. But what's critical is timing because of this viral load, you treat early. You don't wait for the test when patients have symptoms of COVID, you treat them like they have COVID and there are effective treatments to treat them.
1: So so again, so I understand that, but people can't find doctors like you, okay? Uh, they, they just can't. So, is it, before they can find a doctor like you, and hopefully there'll be more. I mean, I know you, some people are doing telemedicine and online, that type of thing. What are they supposed to do? And I, I ben see Marble. somebody, in the uh, ben,
11: ben,
1: go ahead. C- come on up and introduce yourself. Introduce
11: yourself. Oh. By the way, this is a Real? really
12: important question. This is what people. Yes, are sir. Crazy. This is an important question. Uh, I'm Ben Marble, MD. I'm the uh, founder of MyFreeDoctor.com. So um, we've delivered over 150,000 free doctor visits to America, uh, delivering the early treatment McCulloch protocol. We've only lost four patients. We have a 99.9. Nine so nine. repeat that. So you've
1: treated through tele- telemedicine yes, 100, yes. 150,000 COVID patients?
12: Yes, sir. With his team. Yeah. With your team? Yes, with the team. We have a team of volunteer free doctors that do- Donate their time to help treat these patients that come to us. They go to myfreedoctor.com, and uh, they answer our questionnaires. We deliver the early treatment protocols to them as early as we can, and we have a 99.99% survival rate. So I believe uh, myfreedoctor.com, the, the volunteer free doctor team, we have settled the science on this early treatment works. Period. Okay. So, uh, let, let me.
1: <laughs> so let me. Excellent. Excellent. So I will repeat this. So it's free doctor.
12: Myfreedoctor.com.
1: My, M-Y, my. Okay, my. my free doctor. Okay. Um, can you tell me uh, what, tell us the cornucopia drugs you use. What, what is your basic protocol? Are you using what? We're are using these? the McCulloch
12: protocol, which is essentially the controversial drugs, of course, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. It also includes monoclonal antibodies, uh, prednisone, budesonide. Uh, and several other prescription drugs that are low-cost, generic prescription drugs. And of course, we use the over-the-counter, uh, you know, vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, quercetin. Well,
1: you, you mentioned budesidine. Uh, together with Senator Paul and, I'm sorry, I, I'm terrible with names, a doctor in Texas, we sent information after a, a, a study in England saying it was what, what, what percent effective? Over 80%. Right. And, still again, we still don't recommend that. Uh, Dr. Corey, th- thank you very much. Th- first of all, thank you for being a doctor. Thank you for providing that service.
12: Thank you, sir.
13: Yeah, I, I just wanted to, to second the applause to Dr. Marble and his his service and his practice. Um, you know, your question of how to treat this, it, it you know, in my opening statement, I called out the corruption, right? The corruption is because they don't want you to use off-label, repurposed, generic medicines. It does not provide profit to the system. And so that early treatment and its efficacy and the availability is being suppressed. What had happened in this country, and I have to call it out, is, again, I use the words absurdity and obscenity, but these are crimes. You know what's going on in this country right now? Is that the CDC has been captured by the pharmaceutical industry. They sent out a memo in August of 2021, they sent out a similar memo back in the spring of 2020, telling the nation's physicians and pharmacists not to use generic medicines. We are now in a state in this country where Senator Johnson asked the question, how can we get the average U.S. citizen to treat or, or get treated? We have pharmacists across the land who are refusing, refusing to fill these because they've been manipulated and brainwashed into thinking that, it, that the FDA hasn't approved the use, as if that matters. Off-label prescriptions and prescribing has been going on for decades. It's encouraged when there are no effective treatments. Yet I have to, when I try to treat uh, uh, my patients, and Dr. Marble can attest to this, we have pharmacists who refuse to fill some of the safest and low-cost medicines known in the history of medicine. Dr. Marek talked about that. These are extremely safe, extremely low cost. They do not provide profit. The CDC has intervened and have manipulated the doctors. I need to make that message clear to all physicians in the land. These are highly effective medicines. They're not being used. The pharmacists are not filling. All the pharmacists in the land, you have to understand that you are obstructing the good and sound conduct of medicine, it has to stop. It has to stop. We have people dying. And you know, Dr. Marble's practice, the, the volume of patients that myfreedoctor.com has served is 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 really almost miraculous, right? However, there also are other telehealth practices, and I don't want to, you know, take away from Ben, but our our nonprofit organization on our website we have a, a button which says find a provider. We've tried to collect as many telehealth providers that treat all states in the country, and that is a resource. We've done that as a public service. We are trying to let that message be known because that message is being suppressed. That this 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 disease is treatable. There are providers that treat. But how to find them is hard, and I'm glad you asked this question, Senator Johnson, because it's absolutely – I mean, these – I keep calling it out. These are crimes against humanity. We have patients who are falling ill with a treatable disease, and they can't get treatment. So,
1: let let me quick, before I kind of ask my next question, you published in your website or in your substack – what are these called again? What kind of – uh, those
13: are called novel, barely tested, highly profitable. Oh, no, no, I mean that, 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 <laughs> that type of chart. <laughs> okay, that chart is a, called a forest plot. So this is a forest plot of all the different types of
1: drugs. I know it's hard to see all the different drugs that there have been some research on. Um, and what was interesting about this chart is uh, Dr. Corey circled the ones that are recommended by our health agencies. Uh, they all range from seven hundred bucks up to. 3,200. All the ones that are not recommended are the ones that are, you know, a couple bucks. Uh, Go
10: figure. Um, Senator, can I have a word on – so that that website, by the way, that lists all of that that you just referred to is called c19early.com, and you can see a list of all of the, the treatments that are available to people. And so if people cannot get treated by their doctor, they can look at that list. And they can take the things, because a lot of the things on that list, like vitamin D, NAC, um, even aspirin, um, these can all be uh, gotten over the counter without a doctor prescription. And so if you can't get treated early with a doctor, you can use one of those. Also, I want to mention the uh, George Freed and and Brian Tyson and and acknowledge their work. Um, uh, George was going to be here today. He is unable to attend, uh, but his protocol He's treated over 7,000 patients, not as many as as Ben, but they're a small two-doctor practice. they treated over 7,000 with zero deaths. It's 10,000 now. Okay. And and, And they tried to reach out to the NIH in March of 2020 when this first started with their protocol, and they were ignored, and they tried reaching out again and again, and they were ignored, and even today, their protocol is still ignored, even though there are zero deaths from anyone who got their treatment protocol. It's available on the web, they also have a book out now, but that's available to people if you can get a doctor to prescribe it. Um, and also, one final thing is fluvoxamine. And I know a little bit about fluvoxamine because I, I funded the both the phase two and the phase three uh, trials on that now. Trying to get a doctor to prescribe fluvoxamine for COVID is very difficult. But if you happen to be depressed when you've gotten COVID and are depressed about it, you can go to your doctor and okay. say, "Well, could you could I get some fluvoxamine for my depression?" Or maybe you have a hand washing. Uh, Obsessive compulsive disease, or maybe you know you're you're yeah, or wearing masks, or or you're obsessively you know touching your nose. You can get a prescription for fluvoxamine for that um, obsession, and by the way, it might just cure your COVID as well. Just fluvoxamine alone, fifty milligrams twice a day for fourteen days. Okay, so I think the, so. We have uh, Dr. Manget. You you want to say something?
8: Just coming to you. Uh, Question from Virginia. I'm, I practice in Maryland, and it's a familiar problem I'm seeing from Virginia that the Virginia pharmacists are difficult. Uh, it's, it's, and uh, even my patients who, who live in Maryland and work in Virginia face the same problem. But the key answer is to find a, a doctor who is going to treat you. And then that doctor has got to be cognizant that a lot of his prescriptions will not be prescribed. Like I have patients in Virginia. I treat them, I have to figure out where I can get the uh, relevant drugs, and that often means independent pharmacists. So you've got to look This stay away from the CVSs, Costco ain't bad, and uh, you've got to figure out who has it, and that's a key question, and have your patient work with you to identify and find those places.
1: So, by by the way, that's where I've referred people to doctors that actually treat. The first thing I'll say is find a pharmacy that will actually fill the prescription, and, and, and it's an independent one. But let me ask those of you who have utilized this cornucopia of cheap, generic, repurposed drugs. Have any of your patients had an adverse reaction to ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, I mean, just, just you know, Budesidine, flu- any Dr. Cole?
4: No. Um, I've treated 400 patients, not a single one's gone to the hospital, not a single one's died. Half of those were elderly, comorbid, high risk. The only thing that's happened as an adverse reaction is I've lost a third of my business because insurance con- uh, contracts have pulled away from me for unprofessional conduct for using these dangerous drugs, ivermectin. For the which my patients have had no adverse reactions. I've treated five hundred thousand patients or diagnosed five hundred thousand patients diagnostically in my career. I have not had one single complaint against me. I have four complaints against licenses in four different states for saving lives. So the adverse reaction from these drugs is being attacked for being a good doctor. That's the bad uh, adverse reaction. And I know many of my colleagues on this panel as well.
11: Okay, Dr. McCulloch. Me- I just want to I want to give a, just a fair balance statement. And again, you're going to see this among doctors. I'm a cardiologist, so I manage some of the highest risk of people uh, in medicine. I have lost patients, and patients do die of COVID. And I can tell you, 201, the patients that I've lost it's because we've gotten a late start on early treatment. I have recently published a paper with Fazio and colleagues from Italy. We have shown the golden window to treat COVID-19 is the first 72 hours and the patients that I have lost, and they've been very few, but if if people listen to this out here, they will recognize that it's a late start at treatment that is, in a sense, the failure of early treatment. If we start early, we have uniform successes. I've reviewed hundreds and hundreds of reports of hospitalized patients and of those who've died of COVID-19, and in those reports, the clear observation is the determinants of hospitalization and death are the lack of early treatment.
10: Yeah, I, I, I want to echo that. You know, as as head of the COVID nineteen Early Treatment Fund, we see early treatments from all kinds of different doctors, and what makes the difference is not which early treatment protocol you are on. If you get treated early within that seventy two hour window, nobody dies. It doesn't even matter what protocol you're on. If you get treated within those 72 hours, I have never heard of a single case of anyone dying. Okay,
1: um,
2: just,
10: I, I want to I, I, address just real yeah.
1: quick for my staff. Can we do the, my my censored chart? Is that available? If if it is, put it up, uh, Dr. Yeah, I just
2: wanna I want to kind of go off what Dr. McCullough said. Really we're looking at the risk, but the question begs the risk-benefit ratio. That's really what we're getting at. Is there a risk for low, you know, these low ivermectin hydroxychloroquine? I always tell people, yeah, hydroxychloroquine's got so many side effects, like Dr. Parks talked about. Lowers the cholesterol, lowers the hemoglobin A1C, lowers the glucose, lowers the insulin resistance, lowers D-dimer, say, your active protein sed rate, decreases stroke heart attack, pulmonary embolus, decreases chronic kidney disease. So there are a lot of side effects associated with these drugs. <laughs> so that's one. Of, I don't want to finish. There, He's being there very now, facetious. Are Those are all 90, benefits. <laughs> there are now 96 clinical trials going on at clinicaltrials.gov for use of hydroxychloroquine and cancer, so solid tumors. So if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, that's what you're going to see. So these drugs have a lot of side effects. They're really, for the most part, wonder drugs, and they can cause side effects. Jokingly, I was being facetious earlier, but yeah, I mean, they can cause GI you're, you're, side you're effects. You really
1: need to point out how facetious you are being. I mean, okay. All right, all no, right. I'm, I'm not dead serious about that. I mean, t- in,
2: in case you didn't know, lowering the <laughs> lowering the glucose and lowering the rate of stroke and heart attack is a good thing. Okay. Yeah, those so, are benefits, so, not side effects. The, the bottom line is that many of the drugs, like azithromycin, have wonderful effects on so many levels, on inflammation, on viruses, on on many things that you would, I, I've been using for 20 years for scarring. So if you look at what we were, we we're prescribing and you talk about the risk-benefit ratios, what we are prescribing is very, very low risk, low risk drugs over and over, um, and you can compare those, that are, the ones that have been developed by, by Pfizer and Merck. Um, one's a monopiravir, which is a nucleoside analog, and I, I want to go into this because I think it's important. These are not creative thoughts. These are old drugs from the 1950s that have been dressed up and put back out there. And they are literally, they are gonna kill viruses because viruses use the same machinery we do, but they'll also kill your mitochondria, they'll also kill your normal cells. They're actually not too bad at killing cancer cells. Anything replicating quickly. So we are seeing the use of Paxlovit, which is like a Kaletra 2.0. So we are seeing drugs sort of being dressed up and repurposed. They are repurposing themselves and putting a price tag on them. They are using repurposed drugs with a higher price tag. Everyone needs to know that.
1: They get to re them.
2: In their own way. So that is one of the issues with, with what we are seeing. These are not creative things. Remdesivir, that is not creative. Neither is Molnupiravir. I cannot say that enough. It is not a creative thing. The drugs we were talking about are winter drugs. They really are. Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, supraheptidine, pepsid. Um, there's a whole list. <clears throat> I've got a... Um, I won't go through them, but there's a lot of things we can use. They're incredibly safe, and, and, and you can save lives. We've had people save lives without hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. There's a doctor from South Africa named Dr. Shetty. We all know. He saved over 7,000 people without using any of those drugs.
1: So I, I guess my chart's been banned by my staff as well. But let me just quick summarize it for you, because it just points out in very stark terms the safety profile of some of these repurposed drugs versus you know, what we're seeing through the VAERS report with the vaccine. Uh, Ivermectin, over 26 years, on average about 15 deaths per year reported and associated with it. Again, VAERS and FAERS, this is not FAERS, does not prove causation. So 15 deaths per year on average. Hydroxychloroquine, 69 deaths per year over 26 years. The flu vaccine, about 70 Seven deaths, I think it is, 77, seven, oh, it is, a, oh, great. It wasn't banned. <laughs> You're hit, um, yeah, No, I'm a accountant. I, I remember numbers. Um, but you take a look at uh, remdesivir. It's over, over 1,600 deaths since it got its emergency use authorization. Uh, and now, unfortunately, with the COVID vaccine, 22,000 deaths reported on VAERS. Again, we all recognize VAERS does not prove causation but 30% of those 22,000 deaths occurred on day zero, one or two. It certainly raises alarms to me. I don't understand why it hasn't raised alarms to the FDA, and so what I want quick wanna go back over to, cause it's on the same subject, Dr. Wiseman, one of the first things I really recognized in terms of things you had done, is your video you put together in terms of the advisory committee meeting, uh, on Molnupiravir. And very quickly, I, and again, let's not get too far down the weeds, but that advisory committee barely recommended it. It was a vote 13 to 10. Can you just hit on the, and again, I personally hope that Molnupiravir, Paxlovid, worked beautifully. I mean, I, any, anything, I'll embrace anything. I am completely agnostic when it comes to whatever drug will end this pandemic, vaccine, whatever, I don't care. I want this pandemic over, I want people to live. But just talk a little bit about uh, Molnupiravir in terms of that study, and if you've got something on because PAC- I know you've also done some work on Paxlovid too, but again, succinctly.
7: Okay, so thank you. Um, uh, I, would, I would encourage everyone to watch that um, uh, AMBAC meeting. AMBAC was the, is the committee for the FDA that deals with antimicrobial drugs, because that, to me, is the closest to any real discussion of safety and efficacy of any of the agents that we've been talking about and and what's what's remarkable to me is that it hasn't been repeated it wasn't repeated with Paxlovid and it wasn't pre-quelled with the vaccines but in that meeting you had very very good discussion um, among top top FDA toxicology uh, people who expressed serious concerns about about molnupiravir and, and and it's and, and it, amazingly Paxlovit didn't go through the same same procedure uh, afterwards but again, i won, the i
1: wonder why friends were excuse me the concern. Concerns about monopiravir. Work. Okay,
7: so, so the main so, so the main concern of monopiravir is that its 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 stated mechanism of action is to induce mutagenesis. It's to it's to make a a, a storm of mutations so much that it, it discombobulates the 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 uh you know the you know the, the, and, the, the so, and
1: what so what could go wrong there? So what could and, go
7: and their solution
1: the solution of that problem. which Merck was asked and they had no answer for the solution was.
7: Well, they didn't really have a solution. Well, it, it was, the, it, the solution it, it was, was well. We have to be very careful. We'll mo- we'll keep monitoring it. We'll make sure that uh, variants don't don't uh, t- don't come up. In fact, but what surprisingly, Senator, was that? And I've got the documents. Well, here. Well, as, as as I recall, as I recall, the solution was we're going to make sure that everybody stays quarantined on Molnupiravir. Yeah, but and, you, and they were going to take the full dose. Right, but but you know what? Uh, when you read when you read the, uh, the the approval letter, which I happen to have here. I've got I've got the approval letters for Monnu Pirive, Paxlovid and Remdesivir. Yeah, I don't want to take too much time. I'm to- not going to but, but 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 surprisingly all the safeguards that the committee members even the ones who voted in favor of it right, we're saying this, many of them, the, the safeguards that they had, because the, the the concern is are we going to spawn dangerous mutations? And that may even be the, the reason why we've got a funny uncle, who knows? Because we've already got Molnupiravir working on it, okay? But the, the, the concern is that we may be spawning dangerous mutations. And there's all sorts of uh, precautions like you mentioned, and, and hardly any of them are mentioned in the in the monopiravir uh, approval letter, Paxlovid didn't have a didn't have a committee member. Has even more things that they that they mention in the Paxlovid letter about about uh, mutations and 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 resistance. Plus, and it has to be taken with a drug that interacts with a bunch of common
1: drugs, and it's got a long list. of... Okay, that,
7: that's a, that's a, that. Okay. So, totally separate but, but, okay, that's that's that's, so, an, so, a, that's another issue. Sir. But, but, but 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 the main point I think, I mean, many points is is that here you have absolute hypocrisy from the FDA here they 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 they're waving through molnupiravir uh, paxlovid with you know, as you said with with a, with a long list of adverse events okay and and hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and fluvoxamine which, which are which are you know relatively innocuous you've seen you've got the chart over there nothing Nothing. This is this is absolute hypocrisy, and 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 so so what's important about monupiravir? It serves as a as a warning for all of us. That's what should have happened. They should have had those discussions for the vaccines. They should have had those discussions for the Paxlovid, and they should and they should apply hydroxychloroquine through the same channels. And we have data. Pierre and I co-authored a paper. We re we reanalyzed the key. The key study that closed down hydroxychloroquine for pre, for post-exposure prophylaxis, we showed it was completely wrong, There was missing data, we found the missing data, 42% reduction. Not only that, the the, the similar group that had a, had a early treatment version of that study, they won't even supply us with those missing data. We know the data's there, they won't even supply it, it, supply it to us. And so those are the studies that closed down hydroxychloroquine. Those are the ones that FDA need to insist on getting the, those, those data. The New England Journal of Medicine need to insist on getting those data. Annals Internal Medicine need to insist on getting those data. So you talk about corruption and, and, and coercion and, and co-option of the, of, the, of the peer-reviewed literature and, 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 and FDA. Here it is right there. We've got the solution. FDA can get out of this tomorrow. So th- this is where I want to start transitioning
1: into, Dr. McCulloch, who we've talked to in the past. Because you were calling for you know what they're, what they're called, these independent safety review panels, or I mean you've got the exact name for it. Talk about, as Dr. Wiseman just did, talk about what we didn't do in the approval process, in the, in the safety surveillance, the follow-up process. Talk about the steps we didn't take, that we should' have, and what we ought to be doing moving forward.
11: And my comments will be regarding the COVID-19 vaccine, so Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson. I uh, have served on or chaired over two dozen data safety monitoring boards for NIH-sponsored and big pharma-sponsored clinical trials. I know data safety inside out, backwards and forwards. I've also been on critical event committees and I've uh, been on institutional review boards. Those three bodies are essential. I'll repeat, a critical event committee to adjudicate a safety event. A Data Safety Monitoring Board to independently look at what is going on with a clinical program and when an investigational uh, product is being administered. And then a Human Ethics Board to to understand uh, and help protect uh, the, the subjects in that study. We have an Office of Human Research Protections here in the United States, OHRP. They are charged in protecting human subjects. Our COVID-19 vaccines, the consent form indicates in every state in the United States that the vaccines are investigational or in research because they uh, they are under emergency use authorization. What did not happen is we did not have those three essential bodies of independent people installed. We never had those. By the way, they were installed and were utilized in the randomized clinical trials before they came to EUA approval. We also had the wrong bodies leading the vaccine program. Remember, the FDA is supposed to be the safety watchdog. The National Institutes of Health is the government research body, and the CDC is the outbreak investigation body. Right now, the CDC and the FDA are the named sponsors of a vaccine program. If Americans American can learn anything, we should never have the FDA and CDC be a sponsor of a public program in administering a product. It has been a giant and colossal mistake we should have had a separate body a government body be the sponsor of the vaccine program the vaccine manufacturers can supply the products and then we needed the separate data safety monitoring board clinical event committee and human ethics committee uh, there in oversight and if this would have happened based on the emergence of unexplained deaths i am testifying today that the program would have been shut down in february because of excess mortality The NIH,
0: specifically the NAIAD division of the NIH, co-owns the patent on the Moderna vaccine, and six members of the NAIAD get royalties from the profits into their personal pockets, not to mention the entire budget of that program.
1: Are you you sure of that?
0: I'm sure of that. Is that… That's publicly available information. Four. Four Four. Four members um, get royalties. Uh,
1: I, I know there's also an issue, not to, you know, there's also an issue of the people that on the panel for Remdesivir uh, had some kind of tie with Gilead as well.
0: R- rife with conflicts of interest that would never be accepted in other settings. Uh, so they are profiting. And look, NIH, just for people out there that don't know where these agencies are situated in the federal government, NIH, which is gotten involved in sponsoring the research, the studies, uh, for approval of the vaccines. FDA, which is the agency that, that gives approval, and CDC, which is the agency that, uh, that makes recommendations, on which subsequent mandates are based. So the CDC says, well, we don't mandate anything, we don't make federal policy, federal law, which is true. Right, But all the mandates then look to the CDC recommendations as their justification. So nobody ultimately takes responsibility for the mandates. There's no, there's no place where the, the buck stops. Um, all of these are div- divisions of the same Department of Health and Human Services. They all report to the same secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. And the, the, the need for strict separation from those who are profiting from these products Right, which is what we expect corporations to do. Of course, that's what, they're, that's what they're about. But all the more need for careful structures to be put in place such that the regulatory agencies are serving the interests of the American people.
1: Then there's also a revolving door between the agencies and the pharma. I mean, exactly. And I won't name any names, but we've seen it in you the You can trace class. their
0: careers as they rotate through these so, agencies into pharma and back.
1: So let me transition. Dr. McCulloch talked about the CDC, NIH, uh, FDA kind of not playing the roles they should have played. Uh, what, what about the health agencies in general dictating how doctors practice medicine and how foreign that really should be to how the structure is set up? And, and, and why is that? I mean, I, I realized you know, $140 billion worth of grant money flowing through Dr. Fauci over <clears throat> decades. Uh, So, talk a little bit about what has happened to establishment.
0: One more comment. Yeah. Yeah. I received a letter from the California State Medical Board uh, maybe six months ago. Went out to all physicians.